Chapter 7 The Blind Man's Eyes Opened, or Practical Christianity Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. It is expedient that I do the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night comes when no one can work. John 9, 3-4 Observe how little our Lord Jesus Christ was bothered by the most violent opposition of his enemies. If the Jews took up stones to stone him, he hid himself from them. But barely a moment later, when he had passed, perhaps through a single court, and was sufficiently out of range of their sight, he stood still and fixed his eyes upon a blind beggar who had been sitting near the temple gate. I am afraid that most of us would have had no heart to help even the neediest while we ourselves escaped from a shower of stones, and if we had attempted the work, moved by supreme compassion, we would have gone about it blunderingly, in a great hurry, and certainly would not have talked calmly and wisely, as the Saviour did when he answered his disciples' question and continued to have a conversation with them. One of the things worthy to notice in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet spirit, especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged, insulted, and slandered him. He is insulted often, but never ruffled. Even in the midst of death, he is always full of life. No doubt he felt the weight of all the conflict of sinners against himself. In a passage in the Psalms which refers to the Messiah, we read, Reproach has broken my heart. Psalm 69, 20. Yet the Lord Jesus did not permit his feelings to overcome him. He was quiet and self-possessed. He acted with a profound disregard for the assaults and false statements against his character made by his bitter enemies. He was never enchanted by the praise of men. One reason, I take it, for his being so self-contained, was that he was never enchanted by the praise of men. Take my word for it, because I know that if you ever allow yourself to be pleased by those who speak well of you, to the same extent you will be capable of being grieved by those who speak ill of you. But if you have learned, and it's a long lesson for most of us, that you are not the servant of men, but of God, then you will not live upon the breath of men's nostrils if they praise you, and you will not die if they denounce you. Then you will be strong, and show that you have come to maturity in Christ Jesus. If the great master's head had been turned by the hosannas of the multitude, then his heart would have sunk within him when they cried, Crucify him, crucify him. But he was neither lifted up nor cast down by men. Scripture? But Jesus did not trust himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any man should give testimony, for he knew what was in man. John 2, 24-25 His Unbroken Communion with the Father The innermost reason for this quietness of heart was his unbroken communion with the Father. Jesus dwelt apart, because he lived with God. The Son of Man who came down from heaven still dwelt in heaven. He displayed serene patience because He was raised above earthly things in the holy contemplations of His perfect mind. Because His heart was with His Father, the Father made Him strong to bear anything that might come from men. Oh, I wish that we all could wear this armor of light, the celestial display of communion with the High Eternal One.
then we would not be afraid of evil words or of evil circumstances, because our hearts would be fixed on the sure rock of Jehovah's unchanging love. His heart was so set upon his work. There was perhaps another reason for our Saviour's wonderful composure when he was attacked with stones. His heart was so set upon his work that he could not be turned away from it, no matter what the unbelieving Jews might do. This ruling passion carried him through danger and suffering and made him calmly defy all opposition. He had come into the world to bless men, and he must bless men. The Jews might oppose him for this reason and for that, but they could not turn the current of his soul from the riverbed of mercy along which it rushed like a torrent. He must do good to the suffering and the poor. He couldn't help it. His face was set like a rock towards his life work. It had become his meat and his drink to do the will of him that sent him. So, when they took up stones, although he withdrew himself a little, he returned to his life work without a moment's delay. Stones could not drive him from his gracious pursuits. We've seen a parent bird chased away from its nest only to return to it the instant the intruder has withdrawn. We also see our Lord return to his holy work almost before he is out of sight of his would be murderers. There sits a blind man, and Jesus is at once at his side to heal him. They will overtake thee, O Christ, they will seek to slay thee. There are more stones in their cruel hands. Thy haters hurl their missiles fiercely, and they will be upon thee in a moment. What cares he for that? No cowardly spirit can make him overlook an opportunity for glorifying the Father. That blind man must be attended to, and even with all the hazards he stops to deal with him in love. If you and I become completely consumed with zeal for God and with the desire to win souls, then nothing will deter us. We will bear anything and not seem to have anything to bear. We will hear slander as though we never even heard it, and endure hardship as though there were none to endure. As an arrow shot from a bow by a strong archer defies the opposing wind and speeds forward to the white of the target, so shall we fly forward towards the great object of our compassionate ambition. Happy is that man whom God has launched like a thunderbolt from his hand, who must go on and fulfill his destiny. Happy that it is his job to bring sinners to the Saviour's feet. O blessed Spirit, lift us up to dwell in God and to sympathize with his fatherly compassion, so that we won't care about stones or sneers or slanders, but will become absorbed in our self-denying service for Jesus' sake. The Saviour, in his worst and lowest estate, when near to death, thinks of nothing but the good of men. When cruel eyes are watching for an opportunity to slay him, he has an eye for the poor blind man. There is no hardness in his heart towards the sorrowful, even when stones are flying past his ears. The Worker Jesus is the worker, the chief worker, the example to all workers. He even says that he came into the world to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. On this occasion, when he is pursued by his enemies, he is still a worker, a wonder worker, with the blind man. There are many in this world who ignore sorrow, who pass by grief, who are deaf to cries of pain, and who are blind to distress. 
The easiest thing that I know of to do with this wicked, wretched city of London is not to know much about it. They say that half the world doesn't know how the other half lives. Surely, if it did know, it would not live as carelessly as it does, or be quite as cruel as it is. There are sights in this metropolis that might melt a heart of steel, and make Nabal generous. But shutting your eyes is an easy way to escape from the exercise of benevolence and seeing none of the misery which grovels at your feet. Where ignorance is bliss, it is folly to be wise, said some easy-going ignoramus of old time. If beggars are demanding, then passers-by must be deaf. If sinners are coarse, it is a simple matter to cover your ears and hurry on. If this blind man needs to sit and beg at the gate of the temple, then those who frequent the temple must just slip by as if they were as blind as he was. Crowds pass by and take no notice of him. Isn't that the way with the crowds today? If you are in trouble, if you are suffering heartbreak, don't they just ignore you and continue on their way, even though you lie down and starve? Rich men find it convenient to remain ignorant of the sores of Lazarus. It's not so with Jesus. He is quick to see the blind beggar, even if he sees nothing else. He is not enraptured with the massive stones and the beautiful architecture of the temple. Instead, he fixes his eyes upon a sightless beggar at the temple gate. He is all eye, all ear, all heart, all hand, where misery is present. My master is made of tenderness. He melts with love. Oh, true souls who love him, copy him in this, and let your hearts be touched with the same feeling for the suffering and the sinning. There are others who, though they see misery, do not diminish it by warm sympathy, but increase it by their cold, logical conclusions. Poverty, they say, well, that, of course, is brought on by drunkenness, laziness, and all sorts of vice. I do not say that it is not so in many cases, but I do say that this observation will not help a poor man to become either better or happier. Such a hard remark will exasperate the hardened, instead of assist the struggling. Some say, a great deal of sickness is caused by wicked habits and neglect of sanitary laws, and so on. This also may be sadly true, but it grates on a sufferer's ear. It's not a very kind and pleasing doctrine to teach in the wards of our hospitals. I would recommend you not to teach it until you are ill yourself, and then perhaps the doctrine may not seem quite so instructive to you. Even Christ's disciples, when they saw this blind man, thought that there must be something particularly wicked about his father and mother or something especially vicious about the man himself, which God foresaw, and on account of which he punished him with blindness. The disciples were of the same spirit as Job's three comforters, who, when they saw the patriarch on a dunghill, bereft of all his children, robbed of all his property, and scraping himself because he was covered with sores, said, Of course he must be a hypocrite, he must have done something very dreadful, or he wouldn't be so grievously afflicted. The world will still stick to its unfounded belief that if the tower of Siloam falls upon any men, they must be sinners above all sinners upon the face of the earth. A cruel doctrine, a vile doctrine, fit for savages, but not to be mentioned by Christians who know that 
Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and even his most beloved have been taken away all of a sudden. Yet I do hear a good deal of this cruel idea that if men are in trouble, well, of course they brought it on themselves. Is this your way of cheering them? Cheap moral observations steeped in vinegar make a poor dish for an invalid. Such criticism is a sorry way of helping a lame dog over a fence. No, it is putting up another fence for him, so he cannot get over it at all. I notice this of my Lord, that it is written of him that he gives abundantly to all and without reproach. James 1 5. When he fed those thousands in the wilderness, it would have been most just if he had said to them, Why did you all come out into the wilderness and not bring your provisions with you? What are you doing out here without something to eat? You are short sighted and deserve to be hungry. No, he never said a word of the sort. He fed them, fed them all, and sent them home filled. You and I are not sent into the world to thunder out commandments from the top of Sinai. We are not to make our rounds as if we were judge and hangman rolled into one, to meet all the sorrow and misery in the world with bitter words of censure and condemnation. If we do so, we are very different from that blessed master of ours who does not say a word of rebuke to those who seek him, but simply feeds the hungry and heals all those who have need of healing. It's easy to criticize, it's easy to scold, but ours should be the higher and nobler task of blessing and saving. There are certain others who, if they are not indifferent to sorrow and don't proclaim some cruel theory of condemnation, speculate a good deal where speculation can be of no practical service. When we get together, there are many questions which we like to raise and dispute about, which are of no practical value whatsoever. There is the question of the origin of evil. That's a fine subject for those who like to chop logic without making enough chips to light a fire for cold hands to warm at. Such was the subject proposed to the Saviour. Foreseen guilt or hereditary taint. They asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To what point is it right that the sin of parents should, as it often does, fall upon the children? I could propose to you many topics equally profound and curious, but what would be the value in that? Yet there are many in the world who are fond of these topics, spinning cobwebs, blowing bubbles, making theories, breaking them, and making more. I wonder whether the world was ever blessed by as much as one red cent by all the theorizing of all the learned men that have ever lived. Couldn't they all be placed under the heading of vain janglings? I would rather create an ounce of help than a ton of theory. It is beautiful to me to see how the Master breaks up the fine speculation which the disciples set forth. He says, somewhat shortly, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Then he spits on the ground, makes clay, and opens the blind man's eyes. This was work. The other was only worry. Father, said a boy, the cows are in the corn. How did they get in? Boy, said the father, never mind how they got in. Let's hurry up and get them out. There is common sense about that practical thought process. Here we have people sunken in vice and steeped in poverty. Postpone the inquiries, how did they get into this condition, 
What is the origin of moral evil? How is it transmitted from parent to child? Answer those questions after the Day of Judgment, when you will have more light. Now, the important thing is to see how you and I can get evil out of the world, lift up the fallen, and restore those who have gone astray. Never let us imitate the man in the fable who saw a boy drowning, and then and there lectured him on the foolishness of bathing out of his depth. No, let us pull the boy to the bank, dry him and dress him, and then tell him not to go there again, so a worse thing doesn't happen to him. The master was no speculator. He was no spinner of theories. He did not simply proclaim doctrine, but went to work and healed those that had need of healing. In this he is the greatest example for us all in this year of grace. What have we ever done to bless our fellow men? Many of us are followers of Christ, and oh, how happy we ought to be that we are so! What have we ever done worthy of our high calling? Sir, I heard a lecture the other night, says one, upon the evils of intemperance. Is that all you did? Has any action come of that brilliant oration and of your careful attention to it? Did you immediately try to remove this intemperance in the world around you by your example? Well, I'll think about that, sir, one of these days. Meanwhile, what's to become of these intemperate ones? Won't their blood lie at your door? I heard the other day, says one, a very forcible and interesting lecture on political economy, and I felt that it was a very weighty science and accounted for much of the poverty you mention. Perhaps so, but political economy in itself is about as hard as brass. It has no bowels or heart or conscience, neither can it make allowance for such things. The political economist is a man of iron who would be rusted by a tear. Therefore, he never tolerates the mood of compassion. His science is a rock which will wreck a navy and remain unmoved by the cries of drowning men and women. It's like the sandstorm of a desert which withers everything it blows upon. It seems to dry up men's souls when they get to be masters of it, or rather, are mastered by it. It is a science of stubborn facts, which wouldn't be facts if we were not so brutish. Political economy or no political economy, I come back to my point. What have you done for others? Let's think about that, and if any of us have been dreaming day after day about what we would do if, let's see what we can do now and, like the Saviour, get to work. Yet that's not the point I am driving at. It is this. If Jesus is such a worker and not a theorizer, then what hope there is for some of us who need His care? Have we fallen? Are we poor? Have we brought ourselves into sorrow and misery? Don't let us look to men or to ourselves. Men will let us starve and then they will hold a coroner's inquest over our body to find why we dared to die and made it necessary to pay for a grave and a coffin. They will be sure to make an inquiry after it's all over with us. But if we come to Jesus Christ, He will make no inquiry at all, but will receive us and give rest to our souls. That is a blessed text. He gives abundantly to all and without reproach. James 1, 5. When the prodigal son came home to his father, according to all moral decency, 
as people would do nowadays, the father should have said to his son, Well, you've come home, and I'm glad to see you, but what a state you're in! How did you get into this condition? Why, you have scarcely a clean rag on your back. How is it you have become so poor? And you are lean and hungry. How did this come about? Where have you been? What have you done? What company have you kept? Where were you a week ago? What were you doing the day before yesterday at seven o'clock? His father never asked him a single question, but pressed him to his bosom and knew all about it by instinct. He came as he was, and his father received him as he was. The father seemed, with a kiss, to say, My boy, bygones are bygones. You are dead, but you are alive again. You are lost, but you are found, and I inquire no further. That is just how Jesus Christ is willing to receive repentant sinners now. Is there a prostitute here? Come, poor woman, as you are, to your dear Lord and Master who will cleanse you of your grievous sin. Scripture All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Matthew 12:31. Is there one here who has violated the rules of society and is singled out as especially sinful? Come and welcome to the Lord Jesus, of whom it is written, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke 15, 2. The physician never refuses to go among the sick, and Christ never felt ashamed that he looked after the guilty and the lost. No, write this about his crown. He is the Savior of sinners, even of the very chief, and he counts this his glory. He will work for you, not lecture you. He will not treat you with a dose of theories and a host of bitter accusations, but he will receive you just as you are into the wounds of his side and hide you there from the wrath of God. O blessed gospel that I have to preach to you! May the Holy Spirit lead you to embrace it. The Work Room Every worker needs a place to work. Every artist must have a studio. Did Christ have a studio? Yes, he came to do very wonderful works, the works of him that sent him. But what a strange, strange place the Lord found to do his work in! Yet I don't know that he could have found any other. He resolved to work the works of God, and he selected the most suitable place for doing so. Creation If Jesus is to perform the work of creation among men, he must find out where something is missing which he can supply by a creating act. In our text, we have two eyes without the proper light receiving apparatus. Here there is room for Jesus to create eyes and sight. He wouldn't have created eyes in my head or yours if we had been present, because eyes are already there, and more eyes would be unsuitable for us. In the case of the blind beggar in the temple, there was room for Jesus to produce that which was lacking in the curious mechanism of the eye. The blind eye was, therefore, his workshop. If there were eyeballs, they were completely sightless, and had been so from the man's birth. This presented the opportunity for the Lord to say, Let there be light. Genesis 1 3. If that man's eyes had been like yours and mine, clear and bright and full of light, there would have been no space for our Lord's divine operation. But since he was still in the darkness which had surrounded him from his birth, his eyes provided space where the power of the Almighty might be made abundantly clear by a work so wonderful that since the world began 
it had never been heard that anyone had opened the eyes of a man who was born blind. The man was blind for this reason, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That is a blessed thought if you think it over. Apply it to yourself. If there is anything lacking in you, there is room for Christ to work in you. If you are naturally perfect and there is no fault in you, then there is no room for the Savior to do anything for you. He will not gild refined gold, nor lay enamel on the lily. But if you suffer from some great deficiency, some awful lack that makes your soul sit in darkness, your necessity is Christ's opportunity. Your need of grace supplies His need of objects for His pity. Here is room for the Savior to come and display His pity towards you, and you can be sure that He will soon be with you. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Illuminate It wasn't only this man's deficiency of sight, but it was also this man's ignorance which required almighty aid. It is a work of God to not only create, but also to illuminate. The same power which calls into existence also calls into light, whether that light is natural or spiritual. It is a divine work to enlighten and regenerate the heart. This man was as dark in mind as he was in body. What a grand thing to enlighten him in a double sense! He didn't know the Son of God, so he didn't believe in him, but asked in wonder, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? John 9 36. Jesus Christ came to work in this man the knowledge of God, the life of God, in a word, salvation. Because the man was destitute of these things, there was room in him for the Saviour's skill and power. Friend, is that your case? Are you unconverted? Then there is space in you for the Redeemer to work by converting grace. Are you unregenerate? Then there is space in you for the Spirit of God to work regeneration. All these spiritual deficiencies of yours, your ignorance and your darkness, shall be turned by infinite love into opportunities for grace. If you are not lost, you could not be saved. If you are not guilty, you could not be pardoned. If you are not sinful, you could not be cleansed. But all your sin and sorrow by a strange mystery of love is a sort of qualification for Christ to come and save you. That's putting it, says one, in a new light for me. Accept that new light, and be comforted, because it is gospel light, and it's intended to cheer the one in despair. You have said, There is nothing in me. Therefore, it's clear that there is room for Christ to be your all in all. You see, there cannot be two all in alls. There can only be one. And to the extent that you don't claim that title for yourself, Jesus will wear it. All the space that you occupy in your own self importance takes so much away from the glory of the Lord Jesus. If you are nothing, then the whole house is left for the Saviour. He will come and fill up all your inward vacuum with his own dear self and be glorious in your eyes forever. I may venture to say, that all affliction can be looked at as opening the opportunity for the mercy work of God. Whenever you see a man in sorrow and trouble, the way to look at it is not to blame him and question how he came to be there, but to say, Here is an opening for God's almighty love. Here is an occasion for the display of the grace and goodness of the Lord. 
This man's blindness gave the Lord Jesus opportunity for the good work of giving him his sight, and that work was so great a wonder that all around were obliged to comment on it and admire it. Neighbors inquired about it. The Pharisees had to hold a conclave over it. And even though nearly nineteen centuries have slipped away, here we are at this hour meditating upon it. That man's opened eyes are enlightening our eyes at this hour. The Bible would not have been complete without this touching and teaching narrative. If this man had not been born blind, and if Christ had not opened his eyes, all generations would have had less light. We ought to be glad that this man was so grievously afflicted, because in his affliction we are graciously instructed. If he had not been sightless, we would not have seen the great sight of birth blindness chased away by him who is the light of men. So I think I would say to all afflicted ones, Do not kick at your afflictions, do not be excessively troubled by them, or utterly cast down by them, but hopefully regard them as openings for mercy, gates for grace, and roadways for love. That mighty worker of whom I have been speaking will find a workshop in your affliction, and in that workshop he will fashion monuments of his grace. Glory in your infirmities, so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Rejoice that as your tribulations abound, so also shall your comfort abound by Christ Jesus. Ask him to make all things work together for your good and for his glory, and so it shall be. I also believe that sin itself has some of the same attributes as affliction, because it also makes room for the mercy of God. I hardly dare to say what Augustine said when speaking of the fall and of the sin of Adam. Looking at all the splendor of grace that followed after it, he said, Beata culpa, happy fault. As if he thought that sin had furnished such opportunities for the unveiling of the grace of God, and so displayed the character of Christ, that he even dared to call it a happy fault. I will not speculate upon such an expression. I barely dared do more than repeat what that great master in Israel once said. But I do say that I cannot imagine an occasion for glorifying God equal to the fact that man has sinned, since God has given Christ to die for sinners. How could that unspeakable gift have been given if there had been no sinners? The cross is a constellation of divine glory brighter than creation itself. For in the grace that rescued man, his noblest form of glory shines. Here on the cross, tis fairest writ in precious blood and crimson lines. How could we have known the heart of God? How could we have understood the mercy of God? If it had not been for our sin and misery, how could such patience and love have been displayed? Come then, guilty ones, take heart and look for grace. As a physician needs the sick, so that he may exert his healing power, so does the Lord of mercy need you, so he may show what grace he can give. If I were a physician and desired a practice, I would not ask for the healthiest parish in England, but for a position where the sick would fill my surgery. If all I wanted was to do good to my fellow men, I would desire to be in Egypt or some other land visited by cholera or plague where I could save human life. The Lord Jesus Christ, looking over this throng here, does not look for those who are good or think themselves so, but for the guilty, 
who know their sinful state and mourn over it. If there is a sinner here, leprous and defiled, if there is a soul sick from head to foot with the incurable disease of sin, the Lord Christ, the mighty worker, looks on him, because in him he finds a laboratory where he can work the works of him who sent him. The Work Bell In the early morning you hear a bell, which arouses the workers from their beds. Observe how they march into the streets, swarming like bees rushing to or from the hive. You see them going to work because the bell is ringing. There was a work bell for Christ, and he heard it. Then he said, I must work. What made him say that? Why, the sight of that blind man. He no sooner saw him than he said, I must work. The man had not asked anything or even uttered a sound. But those sightless orbs spoke eloquently to the heart of the Lord Jesus, and rang aloud the summons which Jesus heard and obeyed, for he himself said, I must work. Why must he work? Why, he had come all the way from heaven on purpose to do so. He had come from his Father's throne to be a man on purpose, to bless men, and he would not cause his long descent to count for nothing. He must work. Why else was he here where work was to be done? Besides, there were impulses in his heart, which we don't need to stop now and explain, which forced him to work. His mind, his soul, his heart were all full of a force which produced constant activity. Sometimes he selected a route when he was traveling because it was necessary that he go through Samaria. John 4 4. Sometimes he went after men because he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. It is expedient that I bring them also. John 10.16. There was a sort of instinct in Christ to save men, and that instinct craved gratification and could not be denied. The sight of those blind eyes made him say, I must work. John 9.4, King James Version. He thought of that poor man, how for twenty years and more he had lived in utter darkness, and had not been able to enjoy the beauties of nature, look his loved ones in the face, or earn his daily bread. Our Saviour pitied the sorrows of the man in lifelong darkness. He considered how that man's soul had also been shut up like a prisoner in a dungeon because of gross ignorance. He said, I must work. They are after him with stones, but he stops and says, I must work. They may stone me if they will, but I must work. I hear the summons, and I must work. Learn this lesson, all you followers of Christ. Whenever you see suffering, I hope you will each say, I must work, I must help. Whenever you witness poverty, whenever you witness sin, say to yourself, I must work, I must work. If you are worthy of the Christ, whom you call leader, let all the needs of men prompt you, compel you, force you to bless them. Let the world which lieth in the wicked one arouse you. Let the cries of men of Macedonia awaken you, as they say, Come over and help us. Men are dying, dying in the dark. The cemetery is filling, and hell is filling too. Men are dying without hope, and are passing into the eternal night. I must work. They cry, Master, spare thyself. Incessant labor will wear thee down and bring thee to thy grave. But see, 
See, see, perdition swallows crowds. They go down alive into the pit. Hark to their doleful cries. Lost souls are being shut out from God. I must work. Oh, if only I could lay my hand, or better yet that my master would lay his pierced hand, on every true Christian here, and press it upon him until he cried out, I cannot sit here, I must be at work as soon as this service is done, I must not only hear and give and pray, but I must also work. Well, that is an important lesson, but I don't intend it to be the primary one, because I am looking out for those who long to find mercy and salvation. What a blessing it is for you, dear friend, if you want to be saved, that Christ must save. There is an impulse upon him that he must save. I know you say, I cannot pray. Never mind about that. The matter is in abler hands. You see, this man did not say a word. The sight of him was enough to move the heart of Lord Jesus. As soon as Jesus saw him, he said, I must work. Have you ever seen a man in London who has no particular oratory skills, and yet succeeds in obtaining alms on a large scale? I have seen him. He dresses like a laborer. He wears tattered clothes and sits down on a corner where many pass by. His squatting place is a little out of the rush of traffic, but near enough to secure attention from many passers-by. He displays a tattered sign, much the worse for the use made of it by somebody else, and on it is written, I am starving. He looks gaunt, hungry, and as pale as chalk can make him. Oh, the quantity of halfpence that go into his old hat! How people pity him! He doesn't sing a mournful ditty, he doesn't speak a word, yet many are moved by the fact that he looks as if it were true that he was starving. Now you don't need to be false in what you do if you place your misery and sin before the Lord. When you get home, kneel at your bedside and say, Lord Jesus, I cannot pray, but here I am. I am perishing, and I put myself within your sight. Instead of hearing my pleas, look at my sins. Instead of demanding arguments, look at my wickedness. Instead of eloquent speech, which I don't have, Lord, remember that I will soon be in hell if you don't save me. I tell you, the bell will ring, and the great worker will feel that the time has come for him to labor. He will say, I must work and in you the works of God shall be made manifest. You will be the workshop of Christ. The Work Day Our Divine Master said, I must work the works of Him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh, when no man can work. John 9, 4, King James Version This is not talking about Christ the risen Saviour, but this refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as He was a man, here on earth. There was a certain day in which he could bless men. When that day was over, he would be gone. There would be no Jesus Christ on earth to open blind men's eyes or to heal the sick. He would be gone from among men and no longer be approachable as the healer of bodily disease. Our Lord as a man here on earth had a day. It was only a day, a short period, and not very long. He could not make it longer because that matter was settled by the great Lord. The day of His sacrifice was appointed. He Himself once said, My hour is not yet come. John 2, 4. But that hour did come. 
Our Lord occupied thirty years in getting ready for His life work. Then, in three years, His warfare was accomplished. How much He crowded into those three years! Centuries of service could not equal the labor of that brief period. Brothers, some of us have had thirty years of work, but we have done very little, I am afraid. What if we have only three years more? Let us feel the weight of the coming eternity. In a little while I will no longer look into the faces of the throng. They will only remember my name. So I will preach as best I can while my powers remain and my life is prolonged. Within a little while, brother, you will not be able to go from door to door winning souls. The street will miss you and your tracts. The district will miss you and your regular visits. Do your work well, because your sun will soon set. These words of mine may be more prophetic to some present than we can imagine. I may be speaking to some who are nearing their last hour, and shall soon cash in their account. Up, brothers! Up, sisters! Say, We must work, for the night cometh when no man can work. Life cannot be made longer, even if we wish to make it so. Predestination will not lengthen out the thread when the hour has come to cut it off. Life will be short at the very longest, and oh, how short for those who die young! If you and I omit any part of our life's work, we can never make up the omission. I speak with solemn reverence for our divine Master, but if He had not healed that blind man in the day when He lived on earth, He would have missed a part of the business for which the Father sent Him. I don't mean that as God out of heaven He might not have given the poor beggar sight, but that makes the case the more serious as it pertains to us, since we don't have such a future to expect. If we do not serve men now, it will be out of our power to bless them from the skies. This narrative could never have appeared in the life of the Son of Man if He had forgotten to be gracious to the blind man. His visit here below was the time for our Lord to work. If He had come back from heaven to heal the man, that would have been done in a second coming, and not in the first. Even if He omits anything from His first errand below, it cannot be put in again. When you and I have written a letter, we add a postscript. When we have written a book, we can write an appendix or insert something that we have left out. But to this life of yours and mine, there can be no postscript. We must do our work now or never. And if we don't perform our service to God now, while our opportunity serves us, we can never do it. If you omitted anything yesterday, you cannot alter the fact of imperfect service on that day. If you are more zealous now, it will be counted as the work of today. Yesterday will remain just as incomplete as you left it. So we must be on the alert to do the work of Him that sent us while it is called today. In conclusion, if our Lord Jesus Christ was so diligent to bless men when He was here, I feel certain that He is not less diligent to hear and heal them now in that spiritual sense in which He still works upon men. Oh, I wish that I knew how to lead you to seek my Lord and Master, because if you seek Him, He will be found by you as surely as you seek Him. Christ has not lost the bowels of His compassion. He is not cold in heart or slack in hand. Go to Him at once. I just spoke to some of the chief of sinners, and I say to them again, Go to Jesus. 
Let me speak to some of you who are not the chief of sinners, you who have been hearers of the gospel and have only failed because you do not believe in Jesus. Go to him at once. You are backward, but he is not. He must still work, and still work while the gospel day lasts, because that gospel day will soon close. He is waiting and watching for you. Come to him even now. I don't know what it is to come, one might say. Well, to come to Christ is simply to trust him. You are guilty. Trust him to pardon you. Another says, If I do that, can I still live as I did before? No, you cannot. If a ship needed to be brought into harbor and they took a pilot on board, he would say to the captain, Captain, if you trust me, I will get you into harbor all right. There, let that sail be taken down. And they don't reef it. Come, he says, attend to the tiller and steer as I command you. But they refuse. Well, says the pilot, you said you trusted me. Yes, says the captain, and you said that if we trusted you, you would get us into port. But we haven't got into port at all. No, says the pilot, you don't trust me, because if you trusted me, you would do as I ask you. A true trust is obedient to the Lord's commands, and these commands forbid sin. If you trust Jesus, you must leave your sins and take up your cross and follow him. Such trust will surely have its reward. You shall be saved now and saved forever. God bless you, dear friends, for Christ's sake.